just report on fringe science spirituality claims of the paranormal no way we take part ourselves yep when they make the claims we show up so you don't have to i'm ross blotcher and i'm carrie poppy and i worked so hard on this episode oh my god (laughs) this was so much work for me just like i worked so hard on the last episode preparing for that i was draining for you this is one of my favorite topics which really i'm I was going to say sad. I don't know if I'm sad about it, but I would love for us to explore more on the podcast than we have, Mm. which is cryptozoology. Crypto meaning money that isn't money. That's right. Bitcoin, Ethereum, you get it, that kind of thing. And zoology meaning the zoo. That's right. Buying. Buying the zoo from a weirdo in a fedora. But without using any paper money. Yes. Backed by federal. Oh, goodness. We don't want to hear about crypto as well. (laughs) We don't want to hear about (laughs) cryptocurrency. I'm sure lots of wonderful people sell crypto. I don't even know. Has nothing to do with this episode. No. Please don't email. (laughs) But yes, cryptozoology. Okay. It actually means animals for whom scant evidence exists. Oh, that is very well defined. Thank Carrie you. Bobby. Actually, that is one of the opening questions that is answered by this course that I'm going to tell you about. So uh, you took a cryptozoology class. Yes, that's what I'm getting at. So Okay, classy. We both enrolled about the same time at the Center for Excellence. Oh, no way. And it's the Center fil- of Excellence. You're right. It's Center of Excellence. Oh, it's goodness. It's such a weird Thank- name. Thankfully, its name was not on the test. But <laughs> Center of Excellence. And as we've mentioned many times, it is suffused with British spelling. So it's Center of Excellence. But of course, it's just Center of Excellence. Sure. It's an online school yeah. learning place where you can get continuing education credits for things. And so... Wait, oh, are they really continuing education credits? They are. I'll tell you oh. just a moment. Oh. Depends. Depends. Okay. But yes. Oh. <laughs> depends, but yes. Right. Wow, okay. That's an issue, right? Yeah. If you can use some of these courses to tell your approving boards or governing organizations that you have been doing qualifying continuing education for your certification for your professional yeah membership diplomas certification it's kind of an issue if the continuing education requirements are not up to snuff so continuing education is basically when you are in a profession such as nursing being a doctor being a therapist usually these sort of high service professions then you are often required to stay plugged into the most current research and education by taking these things called continuing education units. Sometimes they're called something slightly different, but they're also notoriously sort of under-regulated. So, right. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, okay, definitely gets our interest. But speaking to the definition of cryptozoology, I'm going to jump forward into the yeah. first course, which defines it. Okay. The base of the word cryptozoology is crypto. <laughs> Got to define it. And okay. zoology. Crypto comes from the ancient Greek word Kryptos. I don't know if I'm mm. saying that right. Meaning hidden or secret. While zoology is that part of biology that relates to the animal kingdom. Thus, a definition of cryptozoology is the study of hidden animals. I feel like Kryptos could be a pretty bomb baby name. Someone out there is pregnant. Kryptos. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You really want to have a fighter? You're welcome if, uh, if you use that name. So yeah, well, we were shopping for our courses. You chose the Crystal Healing 
course, you can see on the website how many people have registered for it. Yeah. doesn't tell you how many have actually completed it. That number will be smaller. Sure. Yeah, by <laughs> definition. So they boast the larger number. So you had 22,000 uh, people sign up for the course that you are now certified in, Crystal oh, I'm Healing. I'm so curious how many of us have finished it. I'm guessing it's yeah. in the triple digits or under. Like you said in the last episode, there's no incentive for them to push you to finish this, to yep. get it done. It's just, yeah, well, finish at your own speed. Yeah. It's up to you if you want this thing. We got our money. Don't worry. We'll spin that into a positive that you can take as long as you want. <laughs> exactly. So I was hunting around, and actually I was petitioned on Facebook by one of their ads. Somehow mm. it knew me well enough, or it was just promoting this. Listening. That it had a cryptozoology course. Mm. explore the world of mythical creatures. And there's a little picture of what we can only assume is the Loch Ness monster with its head and upper back sticking up out of Loch Ness. So Mm. I thought, wow, yeah, this was the pitch for it. It said, whether you are undecided about the existence of cryptids or Mm. if your mind is set either way, the Cryptozoology Diploma course will give you a firm foundation in understanding how stories about these particular creatures were created or evolved and what makes them particularly attractive to those searching for new species. Oh man, I want to copy edit that for them, but okay. There will be plenty of that. You will learn about the various sightings of these monsters, some that have been rationally explained and others that remain a mystery. You Mm. will be introduced to some of the more well-known cryptozoologists along with the works that they have written on the subject. Most of all, though, you will be left to come to your own conclusions about the many wondrous beasts that are or are not out there somewhere in our vast planet. Okay. I have a feeling that it's going to lean toward, though, these things exist. That's what I would have thought, too. Oh, okay. Little little Disney glimmer in Blotcher's eye. I got excited there when you said that. Because, yes, that was my assumption. I thought, oh, boy, I'm going to be doing a lot of like fact-checking on this thing. Yeah. Okay. How do we do this? Before you get too deep into this, was Ken Kuhn mentioned? No, don't remember that name coming up. I just got a book about... Bigfoot by Ken Kuhn. I got it in Lorraine, Oregon, a town uh, of 327 people. I wish you'd gotten it in Cancun. Because <laughs> of Ken Kuhn? Because <laughs> of Ken Kuhn. Oh, man, you're right. But I got it in Lorraine, Oregon, a town of 327 people. Wow. When I was visiting my dad, we drove through, yep, we and, drove through this tiny town, and this was at the gas station. Wow. Yeah. Well, that'll become relevant, I think, mm. kind of what cryptozoology does for economies oh sure anyway so i'm sure you're all wondering well how many people signed up for your course ross well it's crypto it's hidden so really only three thousand people have signed up for this course so okay think of this as a very inside scoop okay cool uh, the center for excellence and when i bought it it was on sale they're always advertising a sale it's always Mm -hmm. like a super cut rate deal but this particular ad was i think it was 29 pounds which at the time came to $39.85 U.S. Okay. And I bought this December 13th, 2019. Oh, dang. Two years ago. Been a minute. Nothing's really happened since then in the world. (laughs) And right now, if you go to try to buy it, you're like, oh, it sounds like Ross had a good time. I want to buy this cryptozoology course. It's going to set you back $168.47. Whoa, you really did get a deal. Right, and even then, there's the little cross out, like, well, we would have charged you. Of course, it's true value, which is priceless. precisely 
$263.98. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Very specific. Yeah. But I guess these are being converted from pounds to the US. But yeah, you have to wonder if I earn a diploma that has allowed me to decide for myself whether I believe cryptids <laughs> exist or not. What does that do for me? Mm-hmm. You were able to hang a shingle mm-hmm. and become a crystal healer. Yes. What do I do? I now say, I'm qualified to go <laughs> stalk in your forest because I got this. <laughs> like, you can do that anyway. Yeah, I think you could probably write to some disreputable websites and be like, I will now be your cryptozoology blogger. I'm certified. I'm certified. Okay, I could see that. Or I probably could get me on the History Channel. Yeah, they offered me a TV show once. <laughs> Certified cryptozoologist. <laughs> oh, no, wait, Blotcher. you know what? I just got History Missed Up with Travel Channel. Oh, right. Never yeah, mind. Okay. The History Channel's never offered me a show. I'm so sorry, History Channel. Well, th- but also, I'd say no. <laughs> <laughs> Alas, the History Channel. You could have been great. So I signed up and then sat on it, started with the courses. But it's one of those things that every now and then we go, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to do some of these courses. Uh, Let me get back to it. So it's broken down into 10 modules. Okay. And the first is just kind of an introduction. What is cryptozoology? What's this all about? And then the final one is, what is the future of cryptozoology now that we've learned everything? So the first and the last are both the Alpha and the Omega are kind of these conceptual Mm. chapters. They're kind of these bookended meta discussions of cryptozoology and its place in the world, whereas (laughs) the other modules are very specifically about different creatures. Speaking of copy editing, I thought you might appreciate this paragraph right before the definition of cryptozoology in module one. The module also introduces you to various cryptids, that's just another term for cryptozoological creatures, cryptids, Mm -hmm. and leaves you with an understanding that though the search for unconfirmed creatures may still be ongoing, we must always remember that other creatures existing in the natural world today, that's it. There's, period? There's no period even. It oh. just just breaks up. That's the end of the paragraph. Oh, somebody got distracted. Gladys called their name. They looked <laughs> away. They were like, I'll get back to this. They never oh, did. Oh, well, better write the definition of cryptozoology. Yeah. Yeah, I just okay. got a good, good chuckle out of That's that. Fun. So each module. Or the government erased it. <gasps> bum, bum, bum. Probably that one. I'm just going to give you a list of the modules so you know what we've got coming okay. here. So you can get excited. <laughs> okay. So module two is the Loch Ness Monster. Okay. They come out with the heavy hitters. Module three is actually maybe not the Kraken. Okay. And other sea monsters. Release that. My module. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I've uh, heard people say that. I don't know what it's from. Yeah. Release the Kraken. I it's guess something. that's from. Um, I just got eight tweets. Well, I can hear Liam Neeson saying it from one of the more recent Greek mythology films, but I'm sure it oh, goes it's, back. It's like an old thing. But I feel okay. it goes back farther than that. I don't think. Whoa. Okay. I don't know if he was the first to say it, but yeah, sure. You'll get tweets. Tweet Carrie about it. Don't email oh, me. Oh, no. <laughs> and then she'll be like, what? What was this conversation? Module four, giant anacondas of South America. Oh, cool. Yeah. See, this is... Yeah, that's fun. Cover some ground here. Module five, the legend of Bigfoot. Yeah, there he is. There's my guy. That's what we all came here for. Module six, the Yeti. Module seven, el chupacabra. Okay. Which has always been one of my favorites. Is the hodag on there? No, I'm sorry. I know. It's okay. Wait, the hodag is not technically a lake monster, is it? 
I guess it's technically a lake monster. Oh, I mean, the- I could have found a way to include it in one of my responses if it was. Oh, yeah. Well, the first guy who definitely just made it up, uh-huh. he would do one of his little illusions from a lake. So, okay. yes, but it's not like it needs water to survive. Okay. Module eight is Thunderbirds, and module nine is Mothman. Thunderbird is something other than a car? Yes. Oh. And something other than a male client from Mozilla. Okay. So now you're excited. I can feel it. As with any other course at the Center of Excellence, first you read a few pages with blocks of text. And usually it's going to be three or four of varying lengths. Sometimes Mm. you're scrolling quite a while. Yep. They'll copy in images. And they make it so you can't like select the text. Just copy paste it. They disable right clicking. So they put a little bit of a fight up, but you can still take a screenshot. Yeah. So I take a screenshot. (laughs) And so you're supposed to read all of that. And then they give you an assessment and you fill out these questions. For this one, it was for every module, 10 questions with 10 free responses. So no. No multiple choice. Whoa. I know. That would have been nice. That's a lot harder than mine. Yeah, because if it was just multiple choice, then I could breeze through feeling like I wasn't being, I don't know, slipshod. But nope, they wanted me each time to like free response, just write a little mini essay. Though I do usually write some pretty aggressive nonsense in there and still get points for it. I thought I remembered in a previous course, like seeing the name of a reviewer, but maybe I'm thinking of something Yeah, I I remember seeing that too, but I think that has... Gone, gone the way of the dodo. Not encrypted because it's confirmed, <laughs> confirmed to have existed. Yeah. Yeah. But good reference. Now the do don't, that is encrypted. <laughs> Made up right now. <laughs> if you can find it and get a picture of it, we will shower you with fame. Yeah. Okay. And sure. Money. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. The, the That's do- our deal now. The do don't. <laughs> <laughs> we make people rich and famous. We're kingmakers. The wild do don't. All right. So tell us we're not. I dare you. <laughs> or do don't. The first section was all about what cryptozoology is. You've described it pretty well. Oh, yeah. I should say here, I have this initial page that had the greater description of the course. And this is what really, I don't know, sold me on it, though I guess I was already sold. But I like this. It said, cryptozoology is, as you'll discover in your journey through this course, the search for and study of creatures whose existence or survival is disputed or unsubstantiated. Okay. Which I think is a really good definition because it cuts out things like dodos or Tasmanian tigers or coelacanths or, you know, there's certain things that might kind of fall on those fuzzy edges. But also they introduce like just a little bit of skepticism. So I was like, okay, let's see what you do with this. But like we said, I was still kind of expecting them to be a little more credulous or err on that side. They talk about the history of cryptozoology, related fields of study, such as like young earth creationism and ufology. So they actually kind of label those as being, well, these overlap quite a bit because a lot of people who are active trying to find evidence of dinosaurs coexisting with humans or still being somewhere in the wild are committed young earth creationists who Mm -hmm. feel if I can show that there's a dinosaur somewhere, I will have disproven evolution, Yeah, which you won't have you know somehow we'd have to explain how this one particular creature survived into the present and maintained a breeding population and all of that but yeah it would throw a big wrench in the works that's for sure absolutely yeah Yeah. it's not rabbit fossils in the precambrian but it is definitely gonna mess with our models of how this 
world is played out. Mm -hmm. And then ufology, very similarly, has a lot of tie-ins with cryptozoology. Sometimes owls are actually UFOs. But also, you know, like a lot of cryptozoological lore has been tied in with UFO theories. So there's people who think that Bigfoots are actually psychic phenomena. or Yes, I love the psychic, psychic Bigfoot, Bigfoot people. Yeah, or an alien that has somehow come to visit. Same with El Chupacabra is often mm-hmm. tied to UFO mythology. And people will kind of in the same breath say, I saw a UFO over my cattle and then I found them all bloodless and they were attacked by a chupacabra or was it an alien? I don't right. know. Or like a coyote. <laughs> or that. <laughs> they talk about famous cryptids. So yeah, this is fun. They just go through like list some I'd heard of, some I hadn't, like the Orang Pendek, a small hairy bipedal humanoid creature said to inhabit the remote mountainous forests of the island of Sumatra. Whoa. Cool. In Indonesian, its name translates to short person. So this is fun because it feels like anytime I read about cryptids, I learn about one that I hadn't heard of that had Mm -hmm. been hidden from me. Like I remember on Skeptoid, Brian Dunning covered the Mongolian death worm. And I read about that. I was like, this is awesome. What a cool story. The Hodag. Let's pause. The Hodag is a cryptozoological creature from Rhinelander, Wisconsin, where my mom and stepdad live. Uh That is so great. It's like a green dragon type creature that one of its defining features is that it smells terrible. Oh, wow. And (laughs) likes to... Likes to eat house cats. That's not nice. But smells terrible, can be lured with gross cheese. I mean, it's just like all this ridiculous, (laughs) ridiculous lore around it. And the guy who created it, Eugene, I forget his last name, but. Eugene Levy. (laughs) Eugene Levy invented it, which is wild. (laughs) Very recent. No, but in the last hundred years, it was invented by this guy who just like the entire history is documented of this guy just being like, I don't know, I want to get people to come to my lodge, so I'm going to make this creature. (laughs) And the whole town of Rhinelander has just adopted it. They're like, okay. There's statues of him everywhere. It's so good. So the provenance is clear. We know this guy came up with it. It was a commercial ploy, Mm -hmm. but yeah, everybody's in on it okay yeah it's great i think that's how we get a lot of our cryptozoological creatures they're kind of molded in the design of a previous creature descent with modification so Mm -hmm. there's a lot of nessie spinoffs oh sure you know like champy anyway we'll get to those but here's one the snollygaster Ooh, good name yeah i hadn't heard of that a dragon-like creature that features in american folklore and is thought to still inhabit an area of maryland including Washington, D.C. Oh. Um, I think he just got kicked out of the White House recently. <laughs> Commentary. Yeah, I bet everyone who's not a lizard person in Washington is probably a <laughs> snollygaster. The megalodon shark. There's going to be a range of different types of cryptids, some which feel completely fantastical. Like, I don't know if a unicorn would count as a cryptozoological creature. Yeah, I was just thinking this, or like a dragon. It's like a mythical creature, right? Everyone kind of agrees, like, no, someone made that one up. Yeah, I think the only thing it would take is a bunch of stories rising up that a bunch of people have seen unicorns in New Hampshire. Then all of a sudden it would enter that field. Which would be such a great news story. (laughs) And people like, you know, send in hair samples. Oh, it's actually just a horse. (laughs) Well, how do you know it's not a unicorn? And then they address... Things that might have been considered cryptozoological before, Mm -hmm. but then became real. And it's Mm. kind of like the... Like man. (laughs) That reminds me of that Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy, where he says, what is mankind? To answer that question, (laughs) you need to look at the root words, mank 
and Eind. I remember that one. What do they mean? It's a mystery, and, and so is <laughs> mankind. <laughs> Very silly. I love it. Anyways, so of course, this is the bread and butter of cryptozoologists because they love to point to animals that were thought to be only yeah. mythical or told of in legend, but sure enough, they were found to have existed. So that's yeah, true. Yeah, what are, what are some? The mountain gorillas of southwest oh, Uganda and Africa. Okay. There had been stories about them for a long time, and then someone actually confirmed to the Western world that, look, we found a body. Habe- mm. Habeas corpus. Okay. Same with the giant squid. That was for a mm. long time debated, you know, like, ah, I don't think squids actually get that big. Okay. Until we found some truly giant squids. And another example that's constantly cited is the coelacanth, uh, that's C-O-E-L-A-C-A-N-T-H. I think I spelled that right. Anyways, that's like a prehistoric fish, and fish is a very loose cladistic term to begin with, but it's like kind of distantly related to the fish that we know and love. And it was thought to have gone extinct 66 million years ago. Uh, And then it was found in the early 1900s in the Indian Ocean by accident by some uh, people with a fishing trawler. So pretty cool. But one thing to always point out is, are we talking about megafauna or smaller creatures? Because a lot Mm. of the new creatures that do get discovered are usually pretty small. Like, hey, look, we Mm. found the world's tiniest frog or, you know, we found something that's pretty small. It's pretty hard for us to still find things that are big because we've mapped this world so extensively. Yeah. Certainly above water. Good point. Good point. Let's see. The Komodo dragon says was not accepted by the European zoological community until 1910. I know my favorite, the platypus, was originally considered to be a taxonomist joke. Yeah, I was just thinking that that it would make sense that people would think that can't be real. I thought the norwal for the longest time was a made-up animal. Yeah. Yeah, because it just seems like something you'd be like, it's the unicorn of the sea. Like, <laughs> yeah. take a whale, but make it a unicorn. Okay. Norwal. Very, yeah. very funny. <laughs> I just thought it was a joke and then saw like an actual yeah. photo and was like, oh, Oh, that's real. Th- oh, that's real thing. That's Wikipedia. This right. So, just as a consequence of discovery of the world, originally we thought a lot of potential creatures out there existed, and over time, some of them confirmed, some of them mm-hmm. not so much, like mermaids, mm-hmm. which don't fall in this course. And again, I would say that's mythological, even though there were lots of tales. I don't think there's any like contemporaneous tales. I bet there's some. This gets into another issue, which is like, how many people need to claim it's real before we decide right. that it's a cryptozoological creature? Can, is six enough? There was that really bad pro-mermaid documentary. I don't know. It feels what? like it was like a decade ago. Yeah, this got a lot of play on TV. Oh, my god! They tried to, like, make a serious case for their being mermaids. Oh, that's great. Good for them. Which is a cryptozoological effort, for sure. Yeah, sure. That's another issue, I think, that comes into all of this, which is that some cryptids are feasible. Like, you know, Bigfoot, sure, yes. it's an offshoot of a human. Yeah. But if you're talking about some creature that has, like, a wheel. That's cryptozoological. <laughs> I like it. Yes. That's the only example that comes to mind. But there are ones where there's just no particular. Well, actually, I guess a Mothman would be a good example. And we'll get into him where it's like a humanoid, but with wings. Okay, well, what's the evolutionary path you took to get to that? Right. What evolutionary benefits did it gain without losing important Mm -hmm. features of being a human that you need in order to... Exactly. Existing. Exactly. So I read all of those pages and then I answered my various assessments and they asked me things like, what is the etymology of the word cryptozoology and what does it mean? So instead of just writing one sentence, I write like a whole paragraph and I cite an external source and then... 
They asked me when was the word cryptozoology first used and who coined it. Oh, wow. Uh, so again, who was it? <clears throat> here's my answer. The word cryptozoology was coined by the biologist Ivan T. Sanderson, who hmm. started using the term in the early 1940s. The neologism was first used in print in his 1961 book, Abominable Snowmen legend come to life whoa 1961 that is recent yeah it is a very recent term okay interesting uh, funny that we should mention abominable snowmen because i brought here one of my favorite books in general but also on this topic abominable science oh yes who wrote this one by daniel loxton oh! and donald prothero Don Prothero was on a very early episode of this yeah, show. Yeah, two friends of mine and uh, very good writers, and Daniel Loxton's an amazing illustrator as well. So this is a great treatise. It focuses mostly on Nessie, Bigfoot, and Yeti, sea monsters as well. Fun. Anyways, this was a fun one. I read with my son, and every day we sat down to read it, I mispronounced it in a different way. <laughs> All right, abdominal science. <laughs> He'd be like, no, Dad, abominable. Aw, cute. How it, old was he? It was way too dense of a book. He was probably six or seven. Oh, no. Okay, yeah. yeah that's it was a big one. not the right kind of reading, but <laughs> we had fun. So then they want to know, why do we say cryptid rather than monster? And when was it first used? You get the idea of the kind of questions. And oftentimes, they're asking you a question that can only be answered by two sentences within one of the paragraphs that you read. Yes. But they've given you a warning about plagiarism. And of course, you don't want to just copy what they said at you. So you find yourself finding... New ways to say the same thing. Little ways to rephrase yeah. it. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, In your own words. <laughs> exactly. So they said, Mike Jefferson and Tom John found this creature... In 1682. So then you say, like, Messrs. Jefferson and John in 1982 found this creature. Yeah. I don't know. I think I just changed the dates. But you get the idea. Like, you, you find yourself just kind of wordsmithing, moving things around, finding clever new words to get your answer. So, yeah, that was module one, and I got 100% on it. Oh, congrats. So I get to move on. So there were 10 modules? 10 modules. Okay. And I should say, as of this writing, I had done a bunch in sequence within the last few weeks, and slowly the reviewer has been catching up. So I currently have been graded up through Module 8. Oh, okay, you're not done. You're not certified? So Why I, am I even listening to you? Essentially, this whole podcast is me, like, imagine somebody <sighs> walking for their diploma but knowing they're uh, actually yeah. they're going to get it a month later Hopefully. in the mail. Right? Unless you've completely biffed this. We hope so. Well, I will say I've gotten 100% on every module. Except for those two where maybe you finally get like 3%. Yeah, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't that be great if they heard this <laughs> they episode and they're you. like giving him 0%. <laughs> Fuck this guy. <laughs> I know exactly how he did this. Fuck um. that guy. Again, module two was all about Loch Ness and sea monsters. Describe Loch Ness, highlighting its length, width, and depth. Oh, Loch Ness, the... The lake. Oh, the lake, <laughs> the lake itself, okay. It's 23 miles long. Wow, that's long. That's almost it's a, a big lake. marathon across. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Yeah, you could just kind of run, wow. Yeah, yeah, 26 points. big. I mean, yeah. no wonder you'd see something bobbing in there sometimes. That's an interesting thing, too, is oftentimes, I think they'll I'll usually give the English measurements, but they'll also give the metric system measurements because we're the only idiots sure. still using uh, imperial the system. imperial system, yeah. right? Here's a funny thing for yeah. all the people listening who didn't grow up in the States. At least in my school, we still learned the metric system because Houghton Mifflin made all our textbooks mm -hmm. and they're a British company. 
So I don't know if this was the case for you, but I learned the entire metric system. They were like, we know this makes more sense. We know it's base 10. We know it's intuitive. Okay. Learn all of this because it's in your textbook. Now, by the way, we use feet and inches. Let's learn that too. And mm-hmm. they just like tacked it on the end. Oh, okay. So there's all these opportunities for the US to undo the problem. And we're still like, well, learn all of this just in case. But really, it's feet and inches. Jimmy Carter tried. He tried. Oh, that's right. And it just it didn't take. It only now takes he's one. Focusing on the guinea worm. Takes one generation. Ugh, guinea worm. Actually, that's a great thing to focus yeah, on. Yeah, no, Thank for you. sure. <laughs> Fuck the guinea worm. Good I, job, Carter. Yeah, I was going to try to give him uh, grief for it, but no, he's doing great work. <laughs> the guinea worm, the cryptozoological creature. Yeah, <laughs> no, very much confirmed. When was the first recorded sighting of the Loch Ness Monster, and who was the individual who witnessed it? And why should I believe him? So th- this is a good example of one where I went to read some external sources to get some more information, and yeah. then you end up reading more than you did in the whole course. Oh, sure. But oftentimes, I would say that they would either get the name wrong or they would kind of simplify things and then you Mm. kind of learn well they didn't quite get that right in the text of the course oh right and now do i correct them yeah so then i would just gently say the correct thing Uh uh-huh hope i get bonus points for it yeah but i don't 100 percent seems to be the count (laughs) Okay. But uh, here we go. I'll but read. they're at least not marking it wrong. That's good. Yeah, this is interesting, though. So I'll read my response. The earliest recorded sighting of a monster in the lock goes all the way back to the 6th century common era. Wow. Yeah, though committed to writing a century after the purported event, it is said that a priest named Columba, while visiting the land of the Picts in 564, happened upon a group that was burying a man near the river. They said that the man had died after encountering a water beast. To test this, Columba, the saint, asked for a volunteer to swim across the river. Uh, And they even had the name of the volunteer. He immediately dove into the water and was soon stalked by the monster. It gets better. Thankfully for for him, Columba, who was later to become a saint, so this might have been one of his early miracles, raised his hand made the sign of the cross and commanded the monster to stop and go back with all speed. What? The monster obeyed. And then I said, granted, Columba is credited with other miracles from turning water into wine to consoling a weeping horse. <laughs> so, you know. Wonder if they interviewed the horse. Take this, take this story with a grain of salt. Oh, wow. But there you go. He goes way back, that Loch Ness Monster. Yeah, I have a theory. Okay. Lakes are kind of flat, and you can see further than you do in other places, and so if something's bobbing, you notice it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's my Loch Ness Monster theory. And then you send someone out swimming towards the bobbing thing. Yeah, this isn't about that story in particular. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. why you'd think there was a lake monster, period. Yep, yep, yep. But yeah, if someone just died... And I was like, hmm, I wonder what caused it. I wouldn't be like, well, let's see if it kills another person. Right. That doesn't seem you know, pro-social. Like a saintly thing to do. Yeah. Columbo. Mm. <laughs> Thumbs down. This is another element that will come up a lot is that a lot of these stories just get conflated and people kind of grab the things that they like that are convenient from the different stories. Like, mm-hmm. oh, in 1855, there was the sighting of the Thunderbird and it breathed fire and it was a Thunderbird. Chopped out a cherry tree. But then in another... a lie. But then two decades later, and this isn't a real example, but they'll say something like, and it had the ability to summon the dead or something like mm-hmm. that. And you'll be like, well, okay, no one uses that 
piece of the story in the same way here like they've kind of ignored sort of these other miracle stories and that maybe the description of the beast wasn't anything like what we call the Loch Ness monster now oh right uh, but we're like well it's convenient and it wasn't actually in Loch Ness it was a river a little downstream oh, of it right okay. but you're like you know it's adjacent so we can use it to help support this overall story yeah, yeah yeah so there were a couple sightings in the 1800s so they had me write about those oh this is a good example of what we were just talking about so this 1871 one sighting was perhaps a log or upturned boat, quote, mm-hmm. wriggling and churning up the water. Okay. Hmm. Okay. But then in 1879, there were a group of kids who saw a small head on a long neck turning from side to side. Whoa. Okay. That sounds a little closer to our Nessie friend. Yeah. That we always picture. And then 1888, you had someone spotting a large stubby legged animal mm-hmm. no more than 50 yards from the shore. Mm-hmm. So this one wasn't even in the water. It's like Nessie got out of the water. So all of these things like, you know, they're approximately in the range of what you're looking for for this creature. So, you know, they all get invited as a part of the the storytelling. This was kind of fun. And again, I did some more external research on this. But there was a question, when and what was the first local newspaper to report a story on the, quote, monster, unquote, and what did they report? So the first newspaper to describe a monster in Loch Ness was the Inverness Courier on May 2nd, 1993. Wow. Again, more recent than I would have thought. Yeah, it's always interesting to find out when did we first get the word Yeti or Abominable Mm -hmm. or, you know, and a lot of these things will come up in the coursework. Or how the High Five wasn't around till like the 60s. Yeah, yeah, later than that. Yeah, I was going to say 70s and I was like, that's not possible. Yeah, 70s or 80s, like in a sporting event. It's so So crazy. Especially when it's something that like came about around the time we were born. born. That'll really come up. Stick a pin in that for the okay. El Chupacabra. Ow, ow, okay. Stick a pin in the Chupacabra. Oh, okay. Oh, ow. There we go. <laughs> oh, and then the surgeon's photo. Of course, that's an important piece of the Nessie lore. So they Oh, asked, I didn't know about this. Okay, so that's the one that we've all seen. We're used to okay. seeing the black and white photo of Nessie with that the look of what looks to be like a water dinosaur, essentially. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, I, when you said surgeon's photo, I assumed it was like a cut up. The name of that photo that we always see and associate with Nessie is known as the surgeon's photo. Huh. And, is that oh, the person's name or something? I'll read my uh, reply oh, here. Please. So, the surgeon's photo is the most iconic image of the Loch Ness Monster taken in 1934, reputedly by Robert Kenneth Wilson, a gynecologist who didn't want to be associated with the image, thought it would hurt his credibility. The original is a wide framing of the water's rippled surface with a small object appearing to rise above the water in the lower center. Most of us are used to seeing that image more tightly cropped, showing what appears to be the silhouette of a long-necked dinosaur-like creature with a body trailing behind it. There is a second, blurrier and less well-known image taken at the same time, which appears to show the creature submerging back into the water. The surgeon's photo was a huge turning point in the Nessie mythos, sparking decades of debate over its veracity and hundreds of visitors from all over the world to come seeking this creature. But turned out, who would have thunk it? This was actually a hoax, like an intended hoax. Oh, so, and they're uh, telling you this at the Center of Excellence? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So they're, hey, yeah, excellent. This center. was surprising. So they would give you the myths. They tell you about these kind of iconic pieces of lore. Mm-hmm. But even in those descriptions, there would be a little bit of 
skepticism mm. about those claims. Hmm. And then later on, they would say, and here's what... Here's other, what it was. Here's what other researchers say. Or yeah, here's what it was. In this case, wow. it, it was very unambiguous. So again, I'll read my response just because I, I think this is an interesting story. So two major hoaxes related to the Loch Ness Monster were connected to the same man, though that connection was not realized publicly for 60 years. After the Daily Mail brought in actor, director, and big game hunter, boo, Marmaduke. Daily Mail, boo, big game hunter, boo. Yeah. <laughs> name Marmaduke, boo. <laughs> Marmaduke Weatherall. Okay, never mind. Actually, Thumbs that up. name, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good name. (laughs) To seek out the creature, he reported having discovered its footsteps within just a couple days of searching. Shortly thereafter, zoologists at the Natural History Museum identified those footprints as belonging to a hippopotamus. Ah. Now you got to say, what's a hippopotamus doing in Scotland? Yeah, what is a hippopotamus doing in Scotland? It wasn't even a live hippopotamus, which would have been quite extraordinary to find in Scotland, but rather a single stuffed foot, most likely from a novelty umbrella stand or ashtray. Ah. Wetherill was abashed by the revelation, either at having been caught perpetrating a hoax or having fallen for one. In an act of revenge on the newspaper for having humiliated him, Mm. Wetherill planned and photographed the famous surgeon's photo the following year, enlisting his son-in-law Christian Sperling, a sculptor, to craft a plastic wood creature and affix it to a toy submarine. His son Ian Wetherill, to purchase the materials, as well as insurance agent Maurice Chambers, who convinced the surgeon, Robert Kenneth Wilson, to lend his credibility by submitting the photo that he did not actually take. Ah, and then got himself in a lot of trouble. Yeah, and this all came out much later as a couple of these people were on their deathbeds. Oh, wow. I think this might have been another area where they said that one person said this on their deathbed, but it turns out it was the other person. That person had already died 20 years ago. Whatever. I see. Wow. Yeah, interesting. That's cool. Yeah. yeah, that feels like a movie. Right? Yeah. I think there's a movie there. Yeah. Yeah. But then the last question's like, what conclusive pieces of evidence would now be needed to prove the existence of Nessie? And that was material they gave in the course. And it's always that reasonable stuff like, well, you need to find a body or yeah. you need to find genetic evidence that mm-hmm. this is something that's kind of like a different offshoot but related. Or you need to find actual stool samples. Mm-hmm. But what we found isn't enough. And so I think of it is kind of like analogous to conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. People say, well, what are true conspiracy theories? Well, those are just conspiracies. They happen. Mm-hmm, People mm-hmm. conspire to do things, but it's a theory until you get actual proof. So it would be kind of the same thing with a cryptozoological creature where you find the evidence of it. Well, now it's just a creature. It's also interesting how so much of the literature on the believer end of the spectrum just focuses on whether the person telling the story was lying. Like this book I've got mm. here by Ken Kuhn just keeps talking about how he'd interview these people and they were so honest. He knows a liar when he sees them. He used to be <laughs> yeah. a police officer. People will scratch their face in a certain way when they're lying or whatever. <laughs> but he's A, overconfident in his ability to spot truth telling. But B, even if he's right, the person could just be wrong. Could be telling the truth and be wrong. <laughs> yes. That's seldom taken as a possibility. Yeah. Like, yeah, this person is earnest but mistaken. That reminds me of reading a Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. Oh, yeah. And he talks about like... And I met with William Lane Craig and he looked me straight in the eye and shook my hand firmly. And he'll say that like, what, that's supposed to help me believe everything you say that he says, even though it was later discovered that you didn't interview him in person. Oh my God. Yeah. Sorry. Total deviation. Even as a Christian, I was so irritated when I got to the afterward in the case for Christ. And he's like, no, I didn't actually meet any of these people. I read their books in my basement. So Mm -hmm. it's really more of an imagining of meeting them. I was like, what? Fuck 
you. <laughs> Please, Scribble. I trusted you. Uh, yeah, I just finished reading the Amityville Horror, and that's another one oh, yeah. where I kept thinking, okay, well, if this was just a ghost story or a haunting, that that would be fine. But you say it's true, mm-hmm. and we know none of this is true. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just lying. It's oh, okay. Very I haven't actually looked that oh, much into it, that one. Yeah, and but it, that's how I remember. Yeah, the story crumbles being. under any investigation. Gotcha. But I yeah. remember when they were selling that house. I would so buy that house if I had oh, the money. Totally. I'd sleep in it. They kept saying what one twelve Ocean Street, something like that. Anyways, yeah. that's my dream: is someday I'll get a really good deal on a house because. Yeah. It was haunted. It's reputed to be haunted. Yeah. And maybe it's the I will place have been... I used to live then like call in the gas company and check it out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> they ask what prehistoric creatures some cryptozoologists believe Nessie to be. So that's where I got to elaborate a little bit on different forms of plesiosaurs. Also, the mosasaur was mentioned. Kind of looks like what's that dinosaur with the really long neck? Is Brachiosaur. Maybe? Sure. Used to be Brontosaurus or Apatosaurus. Okay. Yeah. I think Brontosaurus just came back recently. Like there was some sort of name <laughs> It's back, baby. It's back, baby. Um, looks like a dinosaur, but like a little more webbed. Yeah. Yeah. Water adjacent dinosaur from the body up, but then it's got some extra yeah. little like underwater features. Yeah. It's like a creature that for some reason is acclimated to really tall trees and also the lake. And before we get a lot of emails, technically not a dinosaur, an aquatic reptile. And that'll come up later and one where they definitely say it it's a dinosaur and it's not about a okay. different creature ah. and then they ask about other lake monsters from around the world so now i'm crestfallen that i did not include the hodag but i did <laughs> include the ogopogo in lake oh. okanagan in okay. british columbia the nahuelito from nahuel huapi lake in argentina okay champ of course in lake champlain Mokili Membe, that's one I included that wasn't in the text because that's one I learned about as a child being a dinosaur that was still living in the Congo. Ah, uh, okay. And that was disproof of evolution. So don't believe the lie, kids. <laughs> Teach the controversy. Uh, Lake Erie has Bessie, which is snake-like. Hmm. And Scotland also has the Morag, M-O-R-A-G, believed to inhabit the waters of Lake Morar. There you go. Lesser known. So that was module two. All right. So module three was about monsters of the deep. Mm. So the first question is like super easy. What percentage of water covers the planet and what percentage is the ocean? So, you know, we're just filling time here. Um, I don't know what percentage. What, 70? Yeah. 71% of the Earth's surface is covered with water. Oh, yeah. That was a guess. Okay. And roughly 96.5% is held in our planet's oceans. That's me clearly trying to elaborately rephrase something that's (laughs) been given me very simply. So what is the Kraken? In your your answer, note its animal classification in which part of the ocean it was thought to live, the length it was believed to be, and what it could be mistaken for. I can't believe I didn't include a release joke in there somewhere. Shame on me. So typically as the features of a gargantuan octopus or squid, supposed to be in the North Atlantic, at least that's where it was always spotted, and was spotted as far west as Greenland. Some tales even said it was a mile long. What is a kraken supposed to look like? Like a giant octopus or squid. That's a mile long? Yep. Well, that's it, like, not so true. So big that it could be mistaken as an island. Well, no. Yep, right. Well, no. No, until you find one and then you're like, well, yes. Huh. But you're right, no one's found one. Yeah, I guess there's the end of Moana. 
There you go, big creature. Yeah, that's kind of an island. Comes the out island of the sea. turns out. To be, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, never mind. I believe this. There's a large squid that lives in the sea, and it calls me. You're cracking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got you. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And it was believed <laughs> that it would, of course, attack ships. We've all seen like illustrations of gigantic. Oh, that's squids. what that is. That's okay. the kraken. That's yeah. the kraken. Okay. Yeah. Or that it would like create a maelstrom underneath the ship that would just cause it to sink into the water. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then presumably it would feed upon the, the sailors. This definitely sounds like one of those things where someone needed to explain horrible things happening mm. at sea before we knew what anything was. Yep. And yeah. we attributed agency to. Mm something there else. be monsters you put it on the map in the blank spot but again along the way they're suggesting other things it could be like well it could be just like underwater volcanic activity could have bubbles coming up and you could think oh, that's a creature but it's actually just geological activity could be true farting <laughs> they talk about the giant squid which is now a verified thing and it's insanely large it's just not quite a mile big yeah how big are they uh, they've been measured up to 60 feet in length okay yeah that's insane but the first verified spotting of a giant squid was in 1853 when parts showed up on a danish beach wow so yeah i mean the world is cool yeah finding interesting stuff out there if you are a giant squid and you're listening i would love to meet you yeah we'll have you on the show we will we really will you can email us. Uh, they also talk about sea serpents. That was another really popular creature back then. Also, water horses, which surprisingly get left out of this course, but are well covered in abominable science. But those kind of tie a bridge between the sea serpents and the hmm. the Loch Ness monster. Like some people believe that it was a kelpie, which was known as like this kind of sea creature that was sort of like halfway between a horse and hmm. yeah. Anyways. Okay. List six items that might be mistaken for a sea serpent. So again, pretty good at being like yeah, reasonable. So we talk about oarfish and whales and things that form clumps in the water, like flotsam from ships or seaweed. Yeah, okay. So yeah, that's the kind of stuff they're asking. Good for them. I wonder who wrote this. I wish they told us. Yeah. I, it seems like that should be required, like that you get to see who the author is and yeah. what are their qualifications. This is another thing I noticed. Oftentimes when I would go searching for third-party sources, I could tell which paragraphs they had kind of pulled from. Oh yeah, they had plagiarized, yeah. Yeah, doing that same kind of like, I'm going to change a couple words here, but I was like, oh, yeah. this is the source of that. I, sure. I remember seeing that too in mine. All right, so that was module three. Okay, module four, giant anacondas of South America. Okay. So this was fun. One I didn't know quite as much about. You know, you read your three pages about it. What is a herpetologist? A scientist or specialist who studies reptiles and amphibians. So the anaconda is a real creature. Uh, yeah, it's I, just like a snake, right? I want to say, yeah, I think there's three species of it, but they're really big. Huge-ass snakes. Giant snakes. And we have records of true, like, ancestors or maybe not direct ancestors, but previous snakes that were insanely large oh, in the past. Uh, oh, that's right. This is a difficult subject no, for it's Carrie. A, I mean, I just have, it's one of those very common phobias, but snakes are fucking scary. So again, this is not biologically implausible that people claim to have seen snakes up to like 50 feet in length, but then you have to wonder, well, did it just seem insanely large to them? Yep. There I'm you go. Showing Ross a picture of an anaconda in a man's arms. Carrie is oh very bravely looking God. at this. Yeah, massive snake, and they, they're so like fat like a foot in diameter sometimes it's 
crazy impressive. So yeah, the real deal is already quite a wonder, but there are these stories of these giant anacondas that are even bigger. I'm looking at my Apple Watch to see if it's Oh, if your heart rate's going my, up. I can feel my heart rate is up, but it doesn't seem to be like I'm freaking out yet. So, so that's good. So one of the Oh, no, there it is. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, I went from 81 to 97. Whoa. Oh my goodness, yeah. that's crazy. Okay. So we meet Percy Fawcett, another great name. <laughs> Is he a plumber? Uh, he was. <laughs> was he related to Farah? Uh, he was a well-known adventurer from England who claimed in 1906 that he shot an anaconda so large that had it been verified, would reshape our view of modern snakes. Fawcett, what you shot it and what walked away? Fawcett claimed that the snake was Fawcett. 62 feet in length. A what? 62. To, it, so he sat down, he measured it, and then he's like, "Well, that's but, it." But I'm it was walking away. But it was too heavy for his men to carry back. Okay, he even had his faucet. Listen, you've already killed the damn thing, which was rude. Now, cut off a cross section. We'll be able to tell how big that fucker was just by your little couple inch cross section then. Okay, stick a pin in that for the Thunderbird chapter. Okay. Stick a pin in the Thunderbird. Okay. Woof. (laughs) Woof. Nay. That's it. That's it. Nay. Okay, and then we name other people who have also spotted giant anaconda so one guy claimed that he saw a water snake at least 80 feet long so you think well this person has to be exaggerating a bit there was a father and son duo that claimed to have seen a snake over 50 feet in length and they posted a photo in 2009 and i looked this up it was very hard to tell if it was actually mm -hmm. even a snake that we're looking at but yeah you have to ask how good are people at measuring things especially ones that are all twisty it's not like the snake gets out and like slithers up to a football field and keeps its <laughs> right. body all in one go so it's easy way to be hyperbolic but maybe they saw the snake at a theme park and it ran up to one of those like you have to be this high to ride this ride and just <laughs> <laughs> it turns out it's tall enough to ride the ride out, yeah. yeah so the actual green anaconda which is the most common anaconda is the heaviest and one of the longest living snakes, it has been measured up to 30 feet in length or end up to 550 pounds. So yeah, snakes get really big. Mm -hmm. So the question is, do they get even bigger than what science has confirmed to exist? Here's a really terrible Photoshop job. Oh, wow, where they've just taken a snake and scaled it up and put it next to people. Yeah. Well, I'm going to the Galapagos for my honeymoon. (gasps) That's so cool. Yeah, so maybe I'll see some of these giant anacondas. Wow. Would they be on the islands? I don't know. But yeah, the other extinct anaconda that we we're talking about is the Titanoboa. Look up a picture of Titanoboa because there was a museum that recreated it at scale. See what that does to your heart rate. No. Wait, what? And it no. lived uh, about like 58 million years ago. Or at least that's the most recent ones that have been found. This? Yep. That's like the scale of that. This is confirmed. Yeah, they found skeletons of that creature insanely big i think satan planted those bones (laughs) okay fair enough (laughs) that's too big that's insane that's like no and even then that's 43 feet long but it was thought to have weighed about 2500 pounds so over a ton that would have to eat lots of large animals a day it would have to eat like a few pigs a day yeah things grew big then i don't know okay go oh, carry skeptical about no that creature basis for what i'm <laughs> asserting here but this is straining my believability 
Fair enough. Huh. Yeah, insane. So, of course, many cryptozoologists suspect that, well, maybe one of those survived into the present. But again, you need a breeding population. So either you just spotted the last one that's going to die and leave nobody after it, or there's like a family of them somewhere. My faith in experts is being tested in this moment, and I am relinquishing wow. okay. my, it's all right, I'm taking, this is- um, You're trusting that scientists yeah, are doing their job I'm, properly. Yeah, I'm trying but, to model this properly, but share with you that my <laughs> intuition is saying- This, this is not a real thing. This not exist. This is stupid, and you're being played. <laughs> okay. And I am overruling my intuition because my gut is wrong all the time. And Fair I'm enough. saying, well- well, it turns out a bunch of people got together, they figured this out, and they spent their whole careers figuring yep. this exact yep. kind of thing out, and you didn't gut, so I'm overruling <laughs> you. But it is taking work! <laughs> Fair enough. Yep. I know that feeling. So there you go. That was module four. Well, you know, that reminds me. Snakes are kind of fiends when you think about it. But are they the best fiends? No. They're decent fiends. N- not really. You want the best fiend... You have to go to your phone and download Best Fiends, the game. It's an app for your phone. Oh, okay. I hadn't really thought about that, but I guess that's true. That game's kind of the perfect pick-me-up for when you're freaking out about snakes or when you just sort of need a break from the holidays. And Best Fiends has it all. You've heard me talk about it before. It's got an amazing storyline. It's got collectible fiends. They're colorful. You upgrade them. They become your best fiends. And They're not all scary looking. It's a puzzle game, so there's tons of fun puzzles. Are any of the fiends cryptids? Oh, that's a good question, because I feel like the creators of the game are obviously having fun. So they'll do things like that, but I'm trying to think if I've seen an actual like Nessie or Bigfoot. It wouldn't be out of place in the game, so I totally wouldn't put it past them. Even if they don't have cryptids, it sounds like a pretty good game. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, very well designed, a lot of fun. Now, can you play that without Wi-Fi? Why, yes, you can. Oh. You don't need to have an active connection to the internet because it's downloaded the games that are coming up. So for those of us, yeah, those of us who are going to the boonies for the holidays because your parents live in freaking Rhinelander, Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. you can still play Best Fiends? Absolutely. Nice. And I bet you're wondering, what level is he at? That's right. Ooh, I'm at 2,601. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that was... Because 2,600, that was a tough level. Yeah, okay. It was, yeah. They even had- Watch out for that one, folks. Yeah, watch out once you get there. <laughs> and then you'll be like, oh, Ross is right. This one takes a few tries. Or you'll do it right away and you'll be like, Ross is a moron. <laughs> then you can lord it over him. Yeah. But Best Fiends has literally thousands of levels and they're adding more all the time. It's true. And you can download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends, but without the R, Best Fiends. All right, Carrie, but what if Mm. I have a dream? That's good. I mean, it means that your REM sleep is healthy, images are passing through your visual cortex, and your brain's sort of reinterpreting them with a storyline. means that you have like a pretty healthy, active sleep life. But I'd always thought that a dream was just an idea that didn't have a website yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's more of the sort of like Milton Erickson theory of the collective unconscious kind of dream idea. But yes, yes, a dream is in fact just a great idea that doesn't have a website yet. But you can make that dream a reality with Squarespace. Oh, thank goodness. I didn't know how to get it out of my head and onto the internet. Oh, I see your problem. 
I see you, I respect you, I validate you. Thank you. And you can create a beautiful website to blog or publish that content and get it out of your brain and into the world. Okay. You can also promote your physical or online business. That's also good. You can announce an upcoming event or a special project. These are all good. Are there any downsides? Other people might be like, your website makes me feel bad about my website, which isn't that great. Oh, fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's kind of Squarespace's fault for making... Beautiful templates created by world-class designers and powerful e-commerce functionality. Mm. You're right. Those kind of things are going to make other people jealous. Yeah. They'll kind, probably of, be, kind of rude. They'll probably be jealous that they don't have access to 24-7 award-winning customer support. Yeah. They don't even get a Stevie. And they have a new way to buy domains and choose from over 200 extensions at Squarespace. So yeah. I mean, your friends are all going to be jealous. Hopefully, it'll be joyful jealousy. And they'll just join you. But until then, check out squarespace.com slash oh no for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, you can use the offer code oh no to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Squarespace, it's time to make your website, Janice. All right. Well, let me tell you about module five, because this is the one that everyone's been waiting for. Big uh, Bigfoot. Foot. Yeah, okay. That's yeah. Right. Because Carrie kept saying, how are you doing on your Bigfoot course? Yeah. As she was sailing through her crystal healing. I was like, there's more than Bigfoot. Okay. <laughs> there are snakes. There's no hodag. <laughs> I know. No hodag. Uh, but, but you know, it now occurs to me that both of my parents, my parents are divorced and have been for a long time. Yeah. But my dad lives in the Pacific Northwest. He lives near Eugene, Oregon, where there's oh, lots of Bigfoot lore. And yes. my mom moved to Rhinelander, Wisconsin, where there's the hodag. Whoa. I sent my parents off. I was like, all right, team, if you're going to leave Southern California, please go find the creatures. And they did yeah or provide me places to stay when i come to visit where i can investigate said creatures and where i can go and buy bigfoot toe jam so this is what no i came back with some bigfoot toe jam drew and i both love jams and jellies we love to get them when we travel okay and in the pacific northwest there's just like so much bigfoot shit that the jam was bigfoot toe jam yeah what does it actually taste like uh it's marionberry Ooh, that's fun. Yeah. All right, cool. I'm wondering if there is a part of the U.S. or, say, the world that does not have some local cryptid. Fair, but, like, what's L.A.'s cryptid? Wow, you got me. Yeah. yeah I'm sure you could find one. But I do think there are places that are heavier yeah. on yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. I guess L.A.'s cryptid would be, like, sightings of Elvis still alive. Like, you don't need a creature to bring people to L.A. That's a real important point, I think. I do think a lot of these things came out of tourism draws. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah, the merchandise of getting mm-hmm. people to be like, huh, this is just Marinberry Jam, but it mm-hmm. says... It says toe jam from a Bigfoot. I'm going to buy it. That's funny. In fact, after we hear this about this module, I'll give you some Bigfoot toe jam. We can try it. Ooh. I haven't even opened it yet. Okay. I like it. Okay, wise guy. Big toes, big jam. So just so you know, they let you know your learning objectives here. By the end of this module, you will know what a Bigfoot is. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) You will be aware of how far back in history the Bigfoot legend goes. Okay. And you will be knowledgeable about the most important evidence of Bigfoot's existence. Okay. So there we go. Those sound like very reasonable goals for one's life. But I want to know the person who gets to module five and has never heard of Bigfoot. It's like, well, this (laughs) one's interesting. Yeah, right. Okay, here's a little bit of a trivia, assuming this is correct. But apparently there have been sightings of Bigfoot in every U.S. state except for one. Hawaii. You got it. Yeah. That's right. They don't need a Bigfoot. Somebody go find a Bigfoot. All you have to do is say you saw it. 
Yeah, actually, my friend Joy, who listens to every episode of the show, she lives in Hawaii. She lives on Oahu. So, Joy, go find a Bigfoot. Here's Chance. Honolulu Bigfoot. It takes like 20 minutes to drive across that island. Really? Yeah, something like that. That's wild. It's so teeny tiny. So, I, I, that's why I imagine no I've, one has I've only been to be like, okay, let's go there. Yeah. Where was it? <laughs> oh, five minutes away. Let's, let's fucking go, Chad. <laughs> Yeah, harder to hide on an island. Yeah. Yeah, islands and zoology are an interesting combination. Well, you're going to the Galapagos. So yeah. You'll, you'll know all about that. I've only been to Maui, but my I niece lives Hawaii. there. Oh, okay. Oh, I Maui go. was amazing. Oh, we had such a good time there. I want to go to Kauai. Oh, fun. That's but, where Jurassic Park was largely filmed. Oh, is that right? That makes sense. But Galapagos is the number one place I want to go, so I'm so, so cool. excited. Super cool. And I did look, and there are anacondas in Ecuador, but I don't know if there are on the Galapagos specifically. Very nice. So for anybody who doesn't know, somehow the Bigfoot is supposed to be a very hairy, large humanoid Mm -hmm. and either an evolutionary missing link or some sort of atavistic offshoot of the human lineage. And and some people just believe somewhere between a human and a gorilla. Right. And some people believe it to be just like a creature like a gorilla, whereas some would say it's more like Neanderthal or, you know, Mm -hmm. something that's more sentient. Or more human-like, yeah. This was an interesting question. How many Native American names are there for Bigfoot? List oh, wow. at least five of them. Oh, damn. So then you go pull up the text. And yeah, like, you're not okay. going to like have memorized that. But of course, we all know the word Sasquatch. Oh, yes. Is that a Native American that word? That comes yeah. from the Salish Indians' word Sesquak. Oh, okay. I'm just using the terminology from the course here. So. Sure. The hoopa refer to the creature called Oma. Okay. Uh, the hmm. Cherokee have tales of Kekle Kudle. Uh, again, don't know how well I'm pronouncing this. The Yokut recognize a guardian of the spiritual world called Hairy Man. Yeah, I also wonder if these groups would actually agree that they were talking about Bigfoot. Exactly. And this is another good example of that principle where if you read the descriptions, it'd be like, oh, there's a lot of other aspects of this that don't at all yeah. fit within what we would call Bigfoot. But okay. Yeah. It was hairy. Yeah. This right, one right. wasn't tall. <laughs> Something like that. It was right. humanoid. Apparently, various Native Americans spoke of skookums. Hairy humanoids that were known to eat humans. There we go. Ah. That's an example of like, okay, I haven't heard that about Bigfoot, that it eats humans, but yeah, this yeah. one did. Tillamook huh. believed the creature to be female, though you assume there would be a male as well, calling it Zilgo, I don't know, X-I, then apostrophe L-G-O, okay. or wild woman. The Okanogan believed in a similar entity called Snena, or owl woman. <gasps> owl women. Wow. Okay. So there you go. That was interesting. Hmm. I read a couple external sources just to see if there were other common ones. And everything I found was was someone writing like a little blog post and they're a cryptozoology enthusiast. So it's like, how reputable are these legends they're supposedly collecting and how many people actually believe in them? Right. Oh, this is a fun one. Guess which frontier folk hero claimed to have shot and killed a Bigfoot? Mm, Paul Bunyan? Good guess. Daniel Boone. Ah. Real person, Daniel Boone, famous for having explored what is now Kentucky, claimed to have shot and killed a creature that was more than eight feet tall. He called it a Yahoo, inspired by Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. It's interesting, though. You would think people would be like, we better check. You might have just killed a man. (laughs) Yeah, right. Let's go check, Daniel. Daniel, what were you drinking that night? Okay, here we have another one of these origins of the terms. Where was the term Bigfoot first used and why? 
Okay, it was first used in the Pacific Northwest. Yes. In 1933. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm not saying that's correct. I'm just acknowledging that you made that guess. Okay, and it was because they had only found the, the footprints and not the creature itself. You've got totally the right idea. The term Bigfoot, written as two words, first appeared in the Sunday edition of the Humboldt Times on October 5th, 1958. 58, yeah, okay. pretty recent. The piece, Huge Footprints Hold Mystery of Friendly Bluff Creek Giant, referred to a series of articles that regional editor Andrew Gonzoli had been writing since September about mysterious footprint castings measuring 18 inches long. Gonzoli is pictured along with Gerald Crew, who made the plaster cast. The caption reads in part, This imprint was made either Wednesday night or early Thursday morning by Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a capital F, new word. So there you go. I was actually able to find like an image of the original newspaper. Oh, fun. I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. Yeah. Now I'm doing a little bit of learning. This is good. I must note, though, that Humboldt, since it was the Humboldt Times, Humboldt is very famous for a large (laughs) amount of marijuana farming. Yeah. Related? (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe. Yeah. (laughs) You come to your own conclusions. I'll give you a diploma for it. (laughs) So then they ask about the Patterson footage. So this is that famous footage. Oh, yeah. I've always Known heard, hoax. Yeah. I've always heard it referred to as the Patterson-Gimlin footage because those were the two guys who were there. So I'll read my response here just to give a little bit of extra knowledge about it. The Patterson footage, also called the Patterson-Gimlin film, gives us the most iconic image of Bigfoot. It was filmed in 1967 at Bluff Creek. Yes, the same place where the eponymous mm. Bigfoot tracks were discovered nine years earlier. Hmm. In Northern California, who says California isn't good for something? No one. The footage shows a bipedal figure covered in dark hair walking across a clearing in the woods or the creek bed in the full light of day. The footage is notoriously shaky and shows the figure walking from the left side of the frame towards the right, mostly at a three quarters angle with its back towards the camera. By the way, you can find like animated GIFs where people have stabilized the footage. Mm. And it's very fun to watch because it just, you know. It looks like someone wearing a suit and walking. Yeah. But the shakiness makes it feel so much more realistic Blair than Witch it is. Project. Famously, the figure turns toward the camera for about two seconds as it swings its arms and continues to walk. The Bigfoot hunters responsible for the footage are Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin. Patterson is the one holding the 16-millimeter camera, and he dismounts his horse to follow the creature. Gimlin is said to have kept his rifle handy in case protection was needed. And, and then they just like admitted later that they made it up, right? It's shaky about like the, that. Like the footage. Yeah, like the, yeah, that's right. Shoot, I don't want to get this wrong, but like I want to say Patterson never admitted that it was a fake. Okay. And I think maybe Gimlin might have. I think someone came out who said, yeah, I wore the suit. Okay. Um, but, and this came up in the course, again, to the course's credit, that... The suit, like when it's analyzed, even from the blurry footage, first of all, like the hair was overly thick, like it's supposed to be a woman because there are breasts on it that are very noticeable. And usually in any other hominid, the hair will at least thin around the breast region. It's like just this like uniform Mm, matted hair. It mm -hmm. looks like a costume. And if it's at all analogous to the skulls of other apes like 
the gorilla. It has like a crest that you can see in the design of either the mask or the creature that looks like this kind of high ridge that would only be found on males. So it's like, okay, we've got like a male head with female breasts and hair that's way too thick. It really just looks like a suit, someone wearing a suit. Most people do not take that seriously, but of course it keeps the rumor mill going. I am not checking the Wikipedia sources here, so take this with a grain of salt, but at least the Wikipedia page also says that Roger Patterson said to, until his death in 1972, that it was real. Okay, so one person standing by. But yeah, I think most people acknowledge that it's not very convincing. But it is fun. Like on YouTube, uh, I found not too long ago, someone had posted the longer full footage because they shot other things, other scenes to kind of fill out their activity and, you know, make it look like they weren't just searching for Bigfoot. You know, like, mm, oh, right. here's our encampment and here's us uh, riding this along we happened to be shooting camera footage at all. And the creek bed kind of moved over the years. So it took a long time for some independent cryptozoologists to find the original location and confirm it from mm. other clues. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, pretty cool work has gone into it. But that also makes me think like, how obnoxious is it that if someone does fake something like this, they can then set other people for decades? I, yeah. And, spinning and, their wheels. And they're probably thinking, I'm just keeping the mystery alive. I'm doing humanity a favor. But it's like, no, dude, because a lot of other people are not going to leave it as a mystery. They're going to be inspired mm-hmm. and they're going to, yeah, turn their whole careers into like, I'm going to be the guy who actually like taxonomically figures out what this is. And that's going to be my deal. No, you've put that guy through like a humiliating lifetime of stops yeah. and starts yeah, yeah you've diverted someone from other pursuits mm-hmm. yeah anyways they ask about the skookum cast and that was from 2000 there was a film crew in washington state working on a show called animal x and they had been trying to capture this but somehow they didn't get any footage of it but the creature did steal the fruit and like it laid down next to the fruit and left an impression of its butt and like part of it, it's like thigh and its forearm. They also recovered hairs and one primate specialist said, well, it could possibly belong to a Bigfoot. So that was like mm. all around a TV show. Anyways, I looked up online and found a good Skeptoid episode on that. Use that as part of the sourcing on my answer. But again, the course was also critical of the veracity of the Skookum cast. And again, they're asking reasonable questions like name four things that might explain Bigfoot sightings. So that gave me an opportunity to talk about uh, bears. Oftentimes, an explanation for confirmed sightings is later on they realize, oh, it was a bear walking upright. It happens. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering about that. Like when you're talking about something that's sort of in between two creatures, the answer might just be like, oh, it's one of those two creatures. Or you could be like a tree trunk that's just spotted at a oh, distance sure. and it looks like a human. Could be a deliberate hoax. So anyways, that was the kind of answer there. And we've covered Bigfoot. Yay. Yay. Clap, 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 clap. Module six. Very similar. The Yeti or the Abominable Snowman. Oh, wait. Hold on. Before we move on, let me get that Bigfoot jam. Oh, yeah. No. Oh, no. Okay. Watch out for the cable. Okay. Okay, so this is Bigfoot Toe Jam, and Bigfoot is two words. Oh, Bigfoot. Okay. Carrie is opening this jar. It's taking some muscle power. Yeah, it's got some tape on it. It's got tape on it. Oregon Marionberry. One word. Oh, that looks good. That looks like my kind of jam. Yeah. This is my jam. 
Actually, it's your jam, but you're sharing it with me. <laughs> I'm going to grab a big, small spoonful. Interesting. Doesn't have like chunks of the fruit in it. It's very like smooth. It's been thoroughly pureed. It's more like fig-like than I expected. Yeah, it's not quite the flavor I was going for. It's not purely sweet. There's an additional flavor going on there. Yeah, it almost has like a fermented taste. Probably from being inside the toes. Yeah, I suppose so. Or the fur. That's how it gets fermented. <laughs> but not bad. Just, yeah, yeah different, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, okay. Well, I'll take it out. I like that it's distinct. I was expecting to think this was like very close to boysenberry yeah no marionberry sugar fruit pectin and citric acid that's it nice well thank you for sharing you're welcome okay all right so on to the yeti so one of the important things to establish was well the yeti isn't quite bigfoot it's Mm -hmm. usually described as being either gray or having lighter fur but it seems like the same kind of idea of its origins applies, that it's yeah. a humanoid-type character. Usually, it's reported to be ill-tempered. Okay. The Bigfoot isn't always necessarily. Oh, okay. And said to be part of ancient folklore of the Sherpa, people who live in the areas of Nepal and the Himalayan mountains. So I'm taking them at their word for that. This is kind of fun. Who coined the term abominable snowman and why? In your answer, also note the mistake that the individual made with the name. Carrie's thinking about Hmm, this. Okay. All right. When do you want to guess the term came about and what would the mistake have been? 1961. Okay. No, 1963. Okay. I'm very specific. (laughs) Now you're like, no, 62. Too bad. (laughs) Um, And the mistake is... If it were, let's see, maybe they wanted to go for abomination, so it would be like bombitable, maybe? Okay. I don't know how you conjugate abomination. Abominatable? <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and it was a girl, so it shouldn't be snowman. So we owe the catchy term abominable snowman to a journalist named Henry Newman in 1920. 19- oh, Newman. Newman. In 1921. Oh, damn. He spoke with explorers who had recently returned from Mount Everest. Those adventurers described the legendary creature that their guides referred to as, again, apologies for my pronunciations, Mito Kangmi. The Kangmi portion was properly snowman, but Newman made an error in translating Mito as filthy instead of the correct meaning man bear. So originally it was man bear snowman, but... The filthy mistranslation was then rendered in English as abominable, sparking the popular phrase we still know today. Interesting. Yeah. I love the idea of people going to fucking Mount Everest. They're up there. They have altitude sickness. Everyone's totally loopy, and they come back, and they're like, no, I swear to God, there's like, there's like a half human, half bear thing. And someone writes it down. Yeah, okay, makes sense to me. Absolutely. Man bear pig. Yeah. <laughs> so then they had me d- briefly describe five other famous 20th century Yeti discoveries. So in 1925, Greek photographer N.A. Tombazi claimed to have seen a living creature near the Zimu Glacier. Zimu. Wow. At roughly 15,000 feet in elevation. So I don't know if that glacier was named after the space lord in Scientology. Yeah. This figure was dark in appearance and was pulling at bushes. Upon later descent, Tombazi reports that the British Geological Party also came across footprints seven inches long. Again, not very big foot, mm-hmm. but this is the Yeti, so I guess it doesn't have to have big feet, but inconsistent with some of these other stories, which they judged to be from an upright creature. 
Okay, so then in 1948, Peter Byrne was a cryptid hunter actually searching for the Yeti. He claimed to see it by that same glacier. Oh, here we go. So this is interesting. On a later trip, he came across a temple that supposedly had a Yeti scalp and finger. Okay, so I don't include it in this answer, but that temple that supposedly had the Yeti scalp and finger, Mm -hmm. I think it was the finger, was purloined and actually shipped out of Nepal And guess which Hollywood star helped get it out of the country? Charo. It's one that we've mentioned on the podcast before. In fact, we've communicated with his spirit. Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Oh. Which, I guess, shame on you, Jimmy Stewart. He helped smuggle this relic out of the country. Yeah, sure. of course, it turned out to be just, I can't remember. It's actually determined what it was, but it was not a Yeti finger. It's probably a human finger. Edmund Hillary is part of the lore of the Yeti. Don't know who that is. He was the famous explorer who was the first to climb Mount Everest. Oh, okay. And oh, Okay, so oh, he was one of the ones who came back and was like, oh, you guys are so crazy over there. <laughs> and he's from New Zealand. There we go. That's another thing I know about him. Along with the uh, Sherpa Tenzing Norgay, but on one of his expeditions, two other members of his party, Eric Shipton and Michael Ward, discovered a one-mile trail of footprints and this is probably the most iconic image associated with the Yeti. They took a photo of one of the footprints. And so if you look for oh, okay. the Yeti, you'll probably find this photo of a footprint in the sand with a pickaxe next to it for scale. Uh, yep. So there are problems with this, and I break it down, and they break it down in the course, and I do in my further responses. But essentially, if you look at all of the other prints, they look like they belong to the goats that lived in that area. And they just happened to find one that looked like it was different from those. So I probably disconnected from those. And it looked like maybe Snow Leopard had stepped in the same place twice, once with its front foot, once with its hind foot. Uh, and they would kind of overlaid to create oh, right. something that does look kind of humanoid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Something just stepping in the same place twice. But taken out of context. Yeah, it always impresses me when people can do analysis and kind of figure out where the weight was distributed from looking yeah. at the yeah. footprint. Pretty cool. And yeah, Sir Edmund Hillary himself, along with Tenzing Norgay, reported having seen large footprints in the snow, though neither of them was convinced that they were actually made by a Yeti. So they didn't necessarily believe in that. And in 1986, there was a physicist, Anthony Wooldridge, and he was on a charity run and saw what he thought to be a Yeti. He took photos with a small camera. And what's, I think, telling is he took many photos and the creature didn't move at all. And then he said that he also saw footprints leading to it. In the photos, at least, that are published, I can't detect the footprints. And this creature that was 500 feet away, roughly, that didn't move, looks to me like just a clearing in the snow that reveals the rock underneath that happens to be shaped like roughly a humanoid figure. So this is another issue we should mention. There's something called pareidolia, which Mm -hmm. is just basically the human eye and the human brain Mm -hmm. are evolved to together spot animals where there aren't animals, anything that might attack and eat you. (laughs) So we are primed. That's why we see the face in the neon car. That's why we see Jesus in toast, etc. Exactly. And the course, I think, suggested that it might have been a tree trunk or something like that. To me, it looked like a clearing in the snow. And again, to their credit, they have you write what are likely explanations for these various sightings. This was interesting. They talked about Reinhold Messner. Many mountain climbers revere him as one of the greatest mountain climbers of all time. And he got really into 
the whole Yeti legend. He went back there multiple times. He's also the record breaker of being on the first team to ever summit Everest without using bottled oxygen to help him get up there. God. I know, right? Crazy. In, Don't try this at home. In 1978, especially if your home is on Everest. Don't try it there. Well, then maybe you're more used to it. All right. Well, If then. you're listening to this on Everest, I do want to hear from you. Don't try this on Everest. <laughs> so he talked to people. Like he did like a lot of independent research and trying to like go back on multiple missions to see if he could find the Yeti. But he ended up concluding that it was a hybrid of stories about the Himalayan brown bear. Oh, okay. And other species. You know, there's goats, there's other things that people see around there. Oh, I love goaties. And also just the kind of tales that get passed on to both scare children and also warn people against getting away from your group when you live yep. in a harsh climate. Yeah. Because that can kill you. Keep so people safe with fear. So, yeah, that is kind of the prime suspect for Yeti sightings is the Himalayan brown bear. Okay. This was also another interesting kind of connection to what we were talking about with commercialism. Vladimir Dinets, again, I could be saying that wrong, reports that many Yeti tales and interest in Yeti tourism have been ginned up by Russian marketers trying to increase money invested in the mountain villages of Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. He says that at multiple villages, like each village was assigned a witness to tell tales to visitors who would come there. Like, they would try to get wealthy patrons to go visit these towns. Okay. And then they would kind of assign people like, oh, you're going to be the village tale teller, you know, the the mystic, and tell them these stories about this creature that has been spotted here. And they would presumably know they were false? Yeah, planted. Like, hey, this is your job. If anyone comes to the town, you tell them to go speak to, you know, the old woman in the building at the top of the hill, and she'll tell you the stories. Wow. Yeah, so he kind of exposed this. Nefarious. Yeah, totally. And then he points out the obvious that you would also need to have a breeding population. All right, so that was the Yeti. All right, module seven. El Chupacabra. Okay. All right. So I was excited about this one because I remember learning about El Chupacabra when I was young and getting books from Scholastic about cryptozoological creatures. And it means the goat sucker. Yeah. This is one of the ones that you don't hear about that much, I don't think. I would say it's kind of upper tier cryptozoological creature. It's Mm -hmm. like one of the banner Mm -hmm. ones, but it's like uh, Pluto. When Pluto (laughs) is still a planet, like Uh we might classify it out of this category. But yeah, yeah, El Chupacabra, most people know about it. So this one, I think, has a really interesting history behind it. And this course did a good job of bringing that to light. So there were numerous attacks on livestock. Yeah. And they would find the animals with like three puncture wounds in their necks Mm. and then no blood anywhere. Mm. So oftentimes this has been attributed to alien behavior when Mm. this kind of thing is found. But guess when the term chupacabra was created to describe one of these attacks? 1982. Oh, very good guess. 1995. Oh, wow. Right. In Puerto Rico. It was by a DJ. So he was the one who said chupacabra. 1995. So, okay. Interesting. Already? 1995. I was 13. No, I was 12. Okay. Huh. I was... You were 13, I think. Yeah, I was 13. I'll say in a bit why this really confounds me. But yeah, the first reports came from Puerto Rico in the 90s. 
But now, of course, there's been spottings in Chile, in Maine, Russia, hmm. the Philippines. So Chupacabra gets around. Oh, yeah, because they do associate it with a Spanish-speaking population. But yeah. But Maine, that's surprising. Okay. Kind of once it's just in the public consciousness. Yeah, true. It can get anywhere. But we haven't talked about like its physical features. It's often described as being kind of dog-like in shape. Yeah. But often walking on its hind feet. Okay. And having red glowing eyes. Yeah, I picture like a stoned coyote. There you go. Yeah. yeah. According to some tales walking on its hind feet and often with like spikes on its back. That's another feature that's common to the- So does the Hodag. Depiction- Hodag spikes oh, on its back. Oh, okay. Yeah. Scaly skin, <laughs> long claws, and other reports are just more like, oh, I saw like a dog or I just saw something sure. with red eyes, but it all gets kind of looped together. That counts. The first person to have claimed to have seen the creature was Madeline Tolento, a resident in this town in Puerto Rico. At the time, about 150 animals, both livestock and pets, had been attacked in the area. Oh, wow. Yeah, so she was the first to like say that she saw something that kind of matched this description. I wonder if it was just like a rabid coyote or a rabid wolf right which is a very reasonable line of inquiry okay so here's where the story gets weird for me because i remember being into this in high school and that would be like 96 through 2000 if you'd asked me about el chupacabra i would have been like yeah i read Mm. this and i know this and at the time i would have thought this was a long standing idea And Mm -hmm. I even remember, and this is like the one piece of evidence that kind of throws all of this off for me and and makes this one of my things like you were talking about, where it's like, okay, you're telling me something reasonable, Mm -hmm. but doesn't feel right. Because I remember asking my Spanish teacher, Senora Orem, if she had heard of the chupacabra. Yeah. And she said, oh, yes, so scary. And she was, you know, a Christian woman in her 50s. And as I recall, she kind of answered like, oh, yeah, we've always talked about that. And it's, mm. you know, I remember the legends. So in my mind, this goes way back. Uh-huh. But we've already kind of insinuated this. The legends of the Chupacabra apparently only date to 1995. Right. And so this course actually references someone we know, Benjamin Radford. Oh, yep. Writer for the Skeptical Inquirer. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing, I actually haven't read this book and I need to. It's the 2011 book, Tracking the Chupacabra. But I remember hearing Benjamin Radford's takeaway from his investigation where he said that Chupacabra sightings are likely attributable to the movie Species. Oh, uh uh-huh. Which came out in earlier 1995 before these sightings came out. And the woman who first described one said, yeah, I did see that film. Mm. And the creature in it roughly matches. (laughs) It has kind of the spikes and the designs about right. Yeah. And I remember hearing that and being like, no, that can't be right. Mrs. Autumn had Mm -hmm. (laughs) seen it when she was a kid. And, you know, I thought she had said she had. Right. Right. So in my brain, it's like, oh, this feels so dissonant. That can't be right. There's got to be earlier. But no, if you do like, you know, Google Ingram search, as I tried when I heard that. Nope. The term Hmm. really does seem to have come out of the mid-90s, yeah. but to me, it felt so much older learning yeah. about it in the mid-90s. Yeah, and there's so many explanations there, right? Like, she could have been to increase the lore for you, or she could have genuinely been like, yeah, now that you say that, I remember that, and she uh-huh. just was false memory. Yep. Bradford's conclusion was that the chupacabra is actually a composite of various canids suffering from sarcoptic mange. Oh, well, yeah. that's sad. Yeah, so they were in a bad way, and they were eating the livestock they could. And also the whole thing about the three puncture wounds 
could just be that they were killed and they were left long enough that their blood congealed before they were actually opened up and the blood just didn't flow out. Oh, yep. So it looked like a bloodless death, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't actually. Yeah, I mean, I've also seen like seemingly bloodless Mm. animals attacked by wildlife and it's just like they do a more thorough job than we expect (laughs) (laughs) especially if the animal's been there for a while so i just thought it was cool that they were referencing the skeptical literature and getting it right so good job so they actually mentioned ben radford by name yeah oh wow in two of the questions Hmm. absolutely i wondered about that because he's the person who i associate with the chupacabra for sure yeah you know i'm coming around but like just it's never sat with me Mm. well like okay like you're probably right ben but uh, it doesn't feel right to me yeah sure module eight thunderbirds so this is kind of fun because this is one I really didn't know much about. I just think of the car and then I think of the movie American Beauty. Oh, why that? Oh, there's like a whole through line within a, a Thunderbird. Uh, never really came up in any of the cryptid books that I had read going back. But Thunderbird is a giant winged creature of Native American legend okay. of which little is known aside from some reported sightings in the modern age. So there's various mm-hmm. North American tales of gigantic birds And again, we're back in that situation where there's this tale from this tribe and this tale from this people group and this tale from over here. And they all describe like birds that do various things. Some of them protect us from the underworld and some of them came from the sun. You know, like they all have different attributes, but they're all getting kind of lumped in because they're giant birds. Yeah. In Native American legend. Okay. They're birds. They're not humans. They're just giant birds. Actual birds. Okay. They're described as being covered in bright, colorful feathers, and usually, again, in most accounts, said to have sharp claws and teeth. Oh, this is what's in Coco. Those have a very specific name. Oh, I know what you're thinking of. Those are supposed to be creatures that kind of help your travel into the afterlife. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's a separate term for that, but yeah, I know what you're thinking. Probably related and conflated. Apparently, this does legitimately go back. Like, there's a mural that was discovered by... Westerners in 1673 at a bluff at a conjunction between the Illinois and Mississippi rivers. And that was dated to have been painted around 1200 and it depicted a giant bird. Oh, and I guess a hybrid between bird and beast. Oh, that's right. Okay. That's what I was wondering. Okay. Okay. It's not purely bird. Yeah. Sometimes it's also described as having hindquarters of a beast or something. Oh, I see in there. Okay. Well, now that I see them on a totem pole, like it's Ah. very familiar. I'll show you. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think you could probably find many different variations that come Hmm. from many different traditions. But generally, it's thought to represent protection from various uh, forces of the underworld or snake spirits or something like that. Okay. So this one is interesting. And you kind of hit on this earlier about like, well, bring back part of the body. So there's like maybe the most famous sighting of a Thunderbird is the Tombstone Thunderbird. Okay. So the Tombstone Thunderbird sighting carried the imprimatur of being published in a newspaper. The unnamed ranchers described a winged creature resembling an alligator 92 feet in length. Oh, wow. Crazy. With a smooth and a glabrous body. That was my way of just rephrasing them saying that it was hairless. Uh, roughly four feet wide. It had a head eight feet long with jaws containing many strong, sharp teeth. What stood out even more... This was in a newspaper? Yes. Okay. Well, okay, yes. What stood out even more were the creature's wings. They were 160 feet wide and consisting of a thick and nearly transparent membrane. 
It is said that they brought back Whoa. a piece that they cut off of the animal after killing it. So, okay, good. You cut off a piece yeah, at least. Yeah, okay. But later could not find the body. Yeah. And, like, the newspaper account is supposed to have said that, like, they would report back on this. But <laughs> no one is said to have ever actually reported again on this. And no photos are known to have been taken. Though if you look online for the Tombstone Thunderbird, you'll see a bunch of photos of cowboys holding something that looks like a pterodactyl, which is a Photoshop fake. Uh, but yes, it's, a, it's a pretty fun <laughs> image. <laughs> but another problem is we don't have any copies of this newspaper, only reportings that people made of having like, read oh, yeah, I read the newspaper. I remember oh, it was in the newspaper. OK, so that might even not be true. Yeah. And this was a long time ago. I want to say it was like the late 1800s or the early 1900s i can't remember the exact year of the supposed newspaper but yeah we don't have any copies of it to even confirm that it was reported yeah that seems actually kind of sketchy but as many of these cryptids do this legend caught on and there were a rash of sightings in the 1940s Around Illinois, of all places. Okay. And I'm surprised he hasn't come up yet. Lauren Coleman is a famous cryptozoologist, wrote a lot of books on the topic, and he chronicled two such sightings in 1948. In one event, three people had the reverse of the standard Superman experience. They saw a plane and then realized, oh, wait, no, it's a bird because it has (laughs) flapping wings. And then the second account, a man and his son saw an exceedingly large bird-like creature. Okay. And that same day, two St. Louis policemen across the Mississippi from the earlier sighting reported a wing-flapping creature as big as a small airplane flying southwest a few hundred feet off the ground. Hmm. So all of these things get kind of conflated. Well, the Native American peoples had stories mm-hmm. of giant birds, so that, that must be what we saw. Yeah. And here's where they asked about two flying dinosaurs that some cryptozoologists claim could explain the existence of the Thunderbird. And so this is where they had made a mistake because they had said that there was this creature called the Teratorn that was a dinosaur. But when I went to look it up, it was a way more recent creature. And it was supposed to have lived up to like 10,000 years ago, very closely related to a vulture. And the wingspans were 11 feet, maybe even up to 20 plus feet. So yeah, huge creatures, but they weren't dinosaurs. So it's like, oh, I see. you got this wrong in the text of the module. Oh, I see. I'll see. gently correct you here in my answer. But then I did mention, of course, the pterodactylus and pteranodon, which were in the class of flying reptiles that lived about 228 to 66 million years ago. So they had a good long run. And again, a nice little dose of doubt where they say people have pointed out that these birds would have to eat something. They'd have to fly somewhere. We would see them. Yeah. We haven't. So probably not. Or they died out. Who's writing this? Yeah, I know. I really want to know. Yeah. Okay. And final... Content Yay. chapter module okay. nine, the legend of Mothman. And this was another one I didn't really know too much about. So I thought, oh, good, I get to learn about Mothman. So Mothman actually had its origin in West Virginia. Oh, huh. Okay. Yeah, 1966. And the first sighting didn't contain the name Mothman, but uh, sure. <laughs> it was late that year. And there were grave diggers who were at a cemetery, and they saw a human-like creature flying from tree to tree at the cemetery. Hmm, sounds like an owl or something, but okay. Yep, yep, I like where your mind's going. Three days later, two couples were driving past an old factory and saw a gray creature six to seven feet tall with gray wings and glowing red eyes. There we go with the Hmm, red eyes again. Okay. And they thought it was a human figure with a 10-foot wingspan Hmm. standing in front of their car 
And then they tried to drive away and it pursued them at great speed. Like they said, like 100 miles an hour and it was like still following them okay. until finally they lost it. That's a real sort of Betty Barney Hill kind of story. Yeah, 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 totally. And then that was published in the newspaper and that's more recent. So we actually have records of that. And then, of course, other sightings followed. So once you put it in the local media, then you yep. get more people. So you had like a volunteer fireman claiming they'd seen Large bird with red eyes. Okay. Yeah. An easier thing to track than the animal is the story of the animal. Mm, mm-hmm. That might be the method of dispersion. Yeah, exactly. All right. So then you had a book by UFO researcher. And here we get that connection with ufology. Yeah. John Keel, he wrote a book called The Mothman Prophecies. Yeah, sure. And I haven't read that one. And I haven't seen the, I think it's 1992 film with Richard Gere, uh, which I really should. I'm going to make that an assignment for myself. But anyways, I guess he connected these sightings in late 66 with the Silver Bridge collapse, which happened a year later, like the end of 67. Okay. Hmm. 46 people were killed. Sounds like a horrible oh my God. injury. But uh, where was this? In Point Pleasant, or the bridge connects Point Pleasant, West Virginia to... Ohio. Okay. Yeah, horrible tragedy. And so for whatever reason, he connected those two and said that the Mothman was a harbinger of this disaster Ah. to come. It's like, well, what do you do with a warning like that? Like, oh, well, we saw this creature maybe within the next- No one go to a bridge. Right. Maybe within the next year, something bad will happen somewhere. (laughs) Right, right. Totally not actionable knowledge. But that book and then later the film really drove that connection for people. This is a creature. Oh, yeah. The book was in 1975. So, of course, now people have said that they've seen flying creatures that kind of match this description, like a human with wings connected with a mining collapse in Germany in 78, Mm. the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 86, Mm. the September 11th attacks. There's a photo where it was probably a bird flying by, but people are like, look, see, it looks like a human with wings. The outbreak of the Mexican swine flu in 2009 and the Fukushima nuclear plant disaster in 2011. So there you go. The legend lives on. Gosh, you can really pick anything. I mean, now that everything is pretty much documented every minute of our lives, I feel like I could just be like, did you know that the last 18 <laughs> murders, someone ate fettuccine Alfredo two <laughs> weeks before? Right. Like, And we'd find it. Yeah, if that's the standard of evidence, right, you can find matches. And this is a related issue is that we all now carry these high resolution, really mm-hmm. capable cameras in our pockets yep. where we can take video. And so there should be more sightings, not fewer. Uh-huh. There's a great XKCD comic that kind of illustrates that sort of inverse relationship, like mm. the increase in ready cameras and the decrease in sightings of UFOs and aliens and cryptozoological yep. creatures somehow seem to be inversely correlated. Strange. If you really want to keep shouting at a book, get Mike Clellan's The Messengers <laughs> because there's so much of like this insane thing happens where I saw an owl right mm. as I was talking about a UFO and my sister had just died and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, take out your goddamn phone. <laughs> take a picture. This was what, last Tuesday? Yeah. Everyone had cameras in their pockets. Take a goddamn photo. And they just sit and write these long essays. <laughs> Speaking of which, you texted me not too long ago while I was jogging, and right as I got your message, I ran under an owl that hooted at me. Oh, that's right. You texted and me and told me. I took a video and I sent it to you. So there's, Did you? I don't even remember that I part. Did. Uh, well, I, and I still have go. the video. So there is evidence, okay. at least, of my owl sighting, there but owls are known to exist. 
So they're kind of a major part of our culture. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. they get into the explanations of what this could be. And I was really impressed. Again, they talked about different birds that could potentially be Mothman. So wildlife biologist Dr. Robert L. Smith suggested that it could have been a sandhill crane, which like usually its range, its habitat kind of ends on the other side of Ohio, so it's sort of one state away. Yeah. But maybe it got lost, and it's a really tall bird, uh-huh. and it's got, like, big, bright red flesh around its eyes. If, oh, yeah. if I saw one of those at night, and it's got, like, a seven-foot wingspan, if it got in front of me in my car, and I see those big, red, fleshy oh, things around the eyes, I would be freaked out. Yeah, and no, I'm like, that's, that's a legit theory. Yeah, also, if it's at night, you don't know distance. You mm-hmm. might think that's 10 feet away and it's two feet away. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So I always have kind of two thoughts. Like, first of all, well, if I hear a story, I've heard a story. You know, you could have just <laughs> made it up. Like, yeah. And again, not assuming ill will or anything yeah. could just be poor telling or a telling that's been enhanced or of confusion. But I don't feel the immediate need to, like, explain that story. Yeah. But sometimes people do see things that look crazy and they don't take that second look or they don't get a chance to but later on you can find like a physical thing that's a good correlate of what Mm -hmm. they claim to be seeing and it's always very exciting and it doesn't definitively prove that that's what they saw right but it enters into the contest of what this could possibly be and it should get a few extra entry tickets if it also requires less new knowledge new assumptions about how the world works then it's probably the more likely explanation right and then another important thing to do is not to lump all of these claims together is it's so easy to do like oh we love to lump things as humans and put things in categories like oh you had the sightings of the red eyes and you had the sightings of the Mm. the feathers and the wings man-like features so we're going to put all those together and they also quoted joe nickel joe nickel yes also an employee at the Center for Scientific Inquiry and writer for Skeptical Inquirer. They kept calling him Nichols. So I would just write Nickel and be like, well, do I get a credit for <laughs> doing enough research to show that I could spell his name right? But and they're like, nope, we didn't even notice. Yeah, it's funny. I actually have a uh, wooden nickel. He gives that out as oh, his yep. business card. And then he tells yep. you, don't take any other wooden nickels. He's a fun character. You can get he, him to talk endlessly. He is. Um, he has lots he's of a handful. <laughs> But yes, brilliant work. Brilliant work as well. He's done very important work. And if you've watched any documentaries about any of the stuff we talk about on the show, you've seen him at some point. Yeah, yeah. Which is good. We need figures like him in the world. But yeah, he's a character. Anyway, so he had responded to this particular claim. He went to the area, he talked to people, and he realized that there are many albino owls in that area. Mm -hmm. Pleasant, Point Pleasant. And that they have very red eyes, very reflective red eyes. And they could explain at least those aspects of those stories quite Uh, easily. Right, right, right. That people would have seen them. So again, credit to this course for listing those as options and naming these people. Pretty cool. So there we go. I came away learning more about Mothman and giant anacondas and Thunderbirds than I did before. That's great. And got a kind of excuse to look some of these things up. So... Pretty fun, yeah. So hopefully, crossing my fingers, hopefully I pass modules 9 and 10 with 100% as well, and I get my printable certificate. But as I mentioned earlier, they also say that you can pay a little extra fee, and you'll get this British-based diploma that counts as like 150 units towards continuing education. Cool. I Uh, wonder if that's 
accredited and also like continuing education toward what? And in that final module, they talk about the future of cryptozoology. They name many of the problems for cryptozoologists Mm. that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. They have a whole section on cryptozoological tourism Mm. and point out that Mm -hmm. oftentimes people create these just as ways to kind of get people to come to a new place where they wouldn't otherwise and give us some money instead of Albuquerque. Yeah. Man, who wrote this thing? Let's I know, see if we like, can figure it out. This was pretty responsibly done. Yeah. You should send them a message. Because oh, you, yeah. you can write to them in the little system. Okay. Yeah. I should do that and be like, hey, who wrote who this? Wrote they this? did a pretty this good job. Because I have before, I'm pretty sure I've asked that before. I know that I asked the name of the woman in my crystals course. Okay. So I bet they'll tell you. Okay, very good. I had a good time taking this. Good. Glad I Great. did. Great. Yeah, what a weird surprise. <laughs> I know. I I thought I would be kind of... Like both of us reading Mike Clellan's book, sort yeah. of tearing my hair and be like, ah, why don't you right, mentioning right. blah, blah, blah. But no, they mentioned it. Okay, cool. Good for them. Pretty even handed. Well, uh, that sounds like a delight. Thanks for taking cryptozoology for us. My pleasure. Yeah, very different than your crystal healing course. But, yeah, uh, clearly. Except that they both started with C-R-Y. Hmm. But it was fun, and I hope there are many adventures for us in the future, stalking creatures through the woods or <sighs> Me too. other environments. Well, that's it for our show. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton. Our administrative manager is Ian Kramer. This episode was edited by Victor Figueroa. Yes, thank you, Victor. And you can support us. I know that's what you want to do. You're like, well, they should take more courses. They should go searching for Bigfoot in the wilds. They should join religious groups. We can do all of that if you support us at MaximumFun.org slash join. You can also support us by leaving a review on wherever you get your podcast. Say, I like this podcast. Unless it's Spotify, which doesn't have a review system. Oh, then Lame wad. don't even bother. <laughs> but you can on Apple Podcasts and all those other places. So please do. Or, you know, if you can't, then get it out of your system by posting on social media, telling a friend, yeah. share the word. Write a letter. Yeah. And by the way, I believe next week is going to be our 2021 wrap-up where we look back over the predictions made by psychics at the beginning of the year and our own predictions of what 2021 would pan out like. How did we do? How did we do? How did they do? I don't remember what anyone said, so we'll be able to honestly appraise. This will be fun. Okay. And remember. All right. This is Ross reporting back. I did receive my certificate just in case you were concerned. It says Center of Excellence hereby certifies Ross Blotcher has completed the necessary training and assessment to demonstrate competence and understanding within this field. The Center of Excellence awards this certificate in recognition of the achievement cryptozoology diploma with a distinction. That's right. I got distinction, though. That just means I got 86 percent or above on average. And it looks like my assessor was Lynn Hunter. Well, thank you, Lynn Hunter. Maybe you can tell me who wrote this course. Well, Manolo, we have a show to promote. It's called Dr. Game Show. It's a family-friendly podcast where listeners submit games and we play them with callers from around the world. No, sounds good. New episodes uh, happen every other Wednesday on MaximumFun.org. It's a it's a fast and loose oasis of absurd innocence and naivete. And Are you writing a poem? No, and just saying things from my memory. And uh, it's a nice break from reality. 
Is that, are we allowed to say that? I don't know. It sounds bad. It comes with a 100% happiness guarantee. It does not. <laughs> Come for the games and stay for the chaos. Hey there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just got to share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast. We're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't. Rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual, real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us, which can now be found in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.